Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Dr. Neil Rao is with us, infectious diseases specialist, Fulton Region in Ontario, associate professor of medicine at the University of Toronto. We talk to Dr. Rao regularly about COVID-19 and about where we are in our society and where we need to be and what ought to and what ought not to be done to provide relief from this thing and hopefully um, some some conclusion. God, that would be nice, wouldn't it? If we get to the point where we can actually say, I can leave the mask hanging on my indicator turn signal in my car, which I still do. I find myself walking to the front store, door of the store and turn back and go get the thing. Dr. Rao, thank you very much uh, for taking the time. Always good talking to you. Let me start with this. Vaccine availability in this country now in greater doubt, particularly because of the EU decision. The federal government insists 4 million doses by the end of March, and all Canadians who wish to be vaccinated by September will be. Now, what do you make of that? And let me ask you as well, because you told us when you were on the air with us last time that you received your first vaccination. Where do you stand now as far as that's concerned? So I've been bumped. I'm not getting my second dose uh, indefinitely. Um, I... I am happy I got it, but I don't think I am the top priority in any event. I think my dose, if I've been bumped, should go to someone in long-term care. The snag we have right now is that the vaccine formulations we have are really requiring, especially the Pfizer one, requires two doses to give maximum protection to people in long-term care. And I think a lot of the people in long-term care have had only one dose and only some have had two doses. So to really get the maximal benefit, as they're demonstrating in Israel, you really need the two doses. It's good that we have other vaccine preparations from other manufacturers uh, coming into the mix at some point because those ones may not give this delayed protection that requires the second dose. When I speak of the second dose with the Pfizer vaccine, we're talking about a three- to four-week delay between doses, so that's a long time for people to still be at risk being exposed to the virus, having gotten one dose of vaccine and not being protected. So we aren't seeing the dividends from the vaccine in terms of protection of people, even though they've gotten some degree of vaccine distribution rolling. I don't think it's anyone's fault. It's darn bad luck. And it's also a bit like a lottery shoot. If, if, you, if we had bet on one kind of vaccine instead of another, we might have been more lucky. Countries like the United Arab Emirates went for the uh, uh, Chinese-manufactured vaccine that people were skeptical about because it hadn't been uh, published and, and presented for review, but they may have made a lucky bet because now as the information is coming out, it looks like a good vaccine. But So our government went for what was already proven, whereas some others made a gamble against something that wasn't proven, but they had enough to vaccinate their populace. So I, I read about the Chinese vac- vaccine, and according to a Brazilian study, they said it was 50.34% effective. Is there is there better information than that now? So it depends what you're comparing. I don't think the Pfizer vaccine is as good as the original press release data of 90%. The 90% vaccine or 95% data we heard about was in healthy volunteers. What really matters is how does it work in people who are vulnerable. And also, you have to look not at just preventing infection, but does it prevent severe illness and hospital admission? That's probably more important than whether it stops infection. Some of these vaccines don't really stop infection, so they don't prevent you from transmitting it to someone else. But if they can stop serious illness, then we should be focusing on the most vulnerable people getting it first in long-term care and then outside people who are older or those with underlying disease who are older and then those who are younger but with still with underlying disease. And, and obesity seems to be another big driver of uh, risk now. 
Now, I know this is a really critically important issue to you, all of what you just said. So would you address that, please, and and then add in the issue of uh, kids in school? Because in, in many parts of the country, kids are in school. In Ontario, certain parts of Ontario, they're not. Now we have doctors in the province of Ontario calling for schools to reopen where they are, they are closed. I know this is a very important to you. So yeah. you, can you put that all together for us, please? So, look, kids are not at risk of bad disease. There are the, the number of deaths in kids in Canada, I think we've talked about two deaths in all of Canada after this many months. I'm not saying those aren't tragic deaths, but the two that have happened, either one died with it but not from it, another one had serious underlying conditions. So this is not a killer of kids. The scare with kids going back to school is that it becomes the big amplifier of disease in the community the way influenza does. It plays a small role. It's not zero. But if we decide to keep schools closed because it plays a small role, then we're causing inordinate harms. We have to look at kids going to school the same way we look at people who work in food services and food distribution services. We don't shut down food distribution when there's an outbreak because people have to have food on their shelves at a grocery store. We have to look at kids going to school as an essential, necessary part of life. They come first before anything else. And even if they do contribute, say, 5 or 10%, we have to live with it and do our best to mitigate. You, 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 can't, you can't take a whole year off a kid's education. We're already looking at five or six months lost. I'm talking about in Ontario. No other province made this mistake. Other provinces that let their schools open have not seen catastrophes. We already have like a, a, a clinical trial where you have one arm where they did something and another arm where they didn't. And it should be obvious that the entire province should open. I'm sorry to see that even now there's a sort of staggered opening. Uh, I think it, it doesn't matter, case numbers be damned, we should be opening schools for kids, especially the elementary schools. So we're all familiar damned. now, increasingly, with the word variant. It's become a, it's become a, a scrabble word, mm-hmm. um, right? So, so variants were not unexpected, and there may be additional, it's a word I have to remember for the next time I play scrabble. There may be additional variants which are undiscovered. How much change in strategies combating the pandemic might these variants cause? And what's the best way to deal with variants, identified or not? So trying to stop travel because of variants is kind of like beefing up airport security after 9-11, thinking it'll end all terrorism. Like, this, the, the, the variant is already here, and you're always going to have new variants And even if you design a strategy against the UK variant, then there's a South Africa one. There's now a California one. There's a Brazilian one. There's always going to be a new panoply of variants. So the best we can do is focus on the vaccine side of it, making sure we're not losing vaccine efficacy in response to a change towards more variants. With regards to the actual strategies in terms of mitigating against its entry into long-term care, into hospitals, uh, in terms of all the other things we do, the physical distancing, the uh, capacity limits, the mask-wearing mandates, which we can debate at another time to some degree, but in any event, all the things that we're already doing don't change. The virus still behaves similarly. The question is, is whether it's more transmissible or not. Jury's out on that. Some people say the U.K. strain is more transmissible and also more deadly. But on the other hand, the outbreak in the U.K. is actually on the decline. People say it's because of the lockdown, but there are other countries that have the U.K. variant where it's also on the decline. So I'm not sure that the lockdown explains why things are getting better in the U.K. You have so many interventions being done at once, it's hard to tease out 
what's actually working. We know that in Canada, closing toboggan hills doesn't necessarily affect the outbreak. We also know that people wearing masks outdoors probably has nothing to do with whether we have big numbers or small numbers. But we need to start peeling away at what is and isn't effective and what's the best return on investment, as I've said before. Okay, so let's talk about uh, or ask you about declining numbers. If conventional wisdom expressed at the beginning of the month or halfway through December were in fact true, and modeling suggested that Canadians would be getting together with family and friends over Christmas and New Year, and we'd pay the price in January, the end of January. Well, we're at the end of January, and Canadians may have, um, you know, defied the expectations and not mix with family and friends, and yet the numbers are declining. How do you explain that? Well, these models are repeatedly wrong. I've said this before. I mean, they, they always say this is what could happen, but then when it doesn't happen, what you'll hear is it's because we did all the right things that didn't happen. Even with regards to, quote, bad Christmas behavior in the U.K., I was reading The Economist today, that about the, the end-of-year behavior was 70% less in terms of people moving around compared to what it was in prior years. In, the, in Canada, it was about 60% less. It's not actually that people were really that bad. And the other issue, I'm not saying people should defy public health advice and orders to, uh, and start traveling all over the place, but it's not people who are well-off in well-to-do neighborhoods in Toronto who drove the outbreak. This outbreak is being driven because it's being channeled to people who are working for us to keep us safe. It's almost like Brave New World. It's pretty disturbing. We have people working in food distribution. We have people working in uh, 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 food delivery in factory warehouses so we can order online. And those are the people who are facing the virus full blast. And those are people who are lowly paid, who don't live in a nice leasing neighborhood in a fully detached house. They live in a multi-generational crowded apartment building. And those are the people who are facing it. And those are the big drivers of the numbers. Some of the other cases are happening in people who can't avoid getting the virus unless they completely stay home. And some of these people have to go to work. They have to take public transit. So unless we all totally lock down Australia style, like what they're doing in Western Australia now, we can't completely stop the virus. Unless we completely lock up areas of, of Canada and stop people from coming and going, making it a Wuhan, we're not going to be able to stop it. So at some point we have to live with it. But despite the fact that transmission's happening, it's not delivering on the level of those models. And we have to ask ourselves if the inputs to those models are repeatedly wrong because they keep blowing it. If you started graphing what the models predicted versus what is happening, they're always off by three or fourfold. It's like it's a repeated error. I've never seen one that got it right. Dr. Rao, I'm just wondering, and I thought of this as you were speaking earlier, are we losing ground to this virus? And let me just add, add to that question this. What happens to the Canadian population if our national vaccine rollout is slowed significantly when compared to that of the United States or the UK and other nations that are vaccinating far more quickly than we are? We're number 20 in the world right now. Are we losing ground? And is it, if we don't get the vaccine when, we, when we're supposed to, is it just going to compound the problem? So I'll give you bad news, good news. The bad news is that we are facing an outbreak really without having a vaccine in hand. But I've got to be honest, even the other countries in the world that you cited, except for Israel, are facing this outbreak without really having a vaccine effect in terms of protecting a large segment of the population. So we're, we're in the same boat as many other countries in the world. You know, except for Bahrain, United Arab Emirates, and Israel, we are in the same boat. So are we losing ground? Maybe not, because look at the numbers. They're actually getting better with no vaccine. Now, 
Could this change with these new variants? People say it could, but that's not been the pattern in the UK where the UK variant originated, all right? And it's not the pattern in Brazil or in South Africa. So this could be a problem in long-term care for sure. If this virus, if this new strain is more deadly and more transmissible, it could lead to more disastrous outcomes in a given long-term care outbreak than it would have previously with the original COVID. That's where if we do get the vaccine, it's really important to try and get those people vaccinated as soon as possible. And maybe with some of these newer formulations of the vaccine, if we can get more rapid generation of immunity in people who get it and we're not stuck waiting for the second dose, or we're not stuck in a situation where they have to have the deep freeze like they did with the Pfizer vaccine, where we can roll it out more easily, maybe that could be a win. But the other thing on our side is that even at a community level, though there is still transmission, the transmission is actually dropping. The percentage of positive cases keeps dropping. It's under 4% now. It used to be higher at 6%. So there are favorable indicators. We need to watch what's happening in hospitals and stop focusing on daily case counts. So well, I wanted to ask you about that because you've been, you've been very, very outspoken on the issue of, of constant reporting of case counts. Yes. It, it, because it's an obsession, it, 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 it makes a great news story, and then we talk, we test more, and if the percentage stays the same, and you double the number of tests, you actually get twice as many new cases per day, and then you have these, quote, grim milestones that will be reported on all the news, you know, that we've reached a new grim spot milestone, the largest number of daily cases ever. The percent positive is more helpful. All of these parameters can't be viewed in isolation. If you look at percent positive, there still is an issue what kind of population was tested. If I go into a factory where there's an outbreak, I'm going to have 80% positivity in some cases. So it can be skewed by who was tested. More important, actually, is to keep watching at a hospital level. Number of people ending up on ventilators, number of people being admitted to an intensive care unit, number of daily deaths per day. It's morbid. It's sad. It happens. But those are the better indicators of an objective measure of what's really happening. One of the mistakes we're making at a federal level is that we count cases which don't have symptoms the same as those with symptoms. We can track both, but we should actually separate them out. In Italy, they separate them out, for example, because the real trend of what's happening with community disease is driven by those who have symptoms. Like That's what tells you what's really happening, whether it's going up or going down. And that would be a better way of monitoring the impact of the variants, too. I have two minutes, and rather than my asking you another question, what do you want to say? I think the travel restrictions are real political theater. It's a very small contribution to cases. A lot of news distraction on quarantine hotels and making people feel good that we're punishing people who went and traveled, but I actually think it's, it's almost demagoguery. It's really sad to see an additional set of restrictions on people who are traveling uh, imposed quarantine following travel was already a very big disincentive for people to go away. There are many people who do have to leave, and it's not for a Caribbean sun trip. They are people who are from uh, uh, countries abroad where their families still live. They want to go back and see their family in the Caribbean, or they want to go back to the Philippines. Those people can't afford to pay for a quarantine hotel. So we have hurt some people who live here to make money, to send home to have the affluence to go back and see their family at home and, and to separate them like this indefinitely, I think, is, is quite sad. There's also even the issue of the, the border being closed. That There are areas in the U.S. where the risk is not as high uh, as Canada, 
as many parts of Canada. And instead of having one blanket approach, I think it would be wiser to start looking at areas of similar level the way the European countries have, instead of completely closing the interchange of people. I, I know this sounds really provocative now with new strains, but the strains are already here. We just started looking for strains with the UK variant arriving here. We weren't looking properly. I'm sure they were here three or four months ago, and we didn't see it because it was not noticeable yet. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.